Well, good morning, everyone. Man, after all this preaching on David, that feels like a dramatic ending, doesn't it? You feel like you've lost a friend. So um, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, let's, uh, we come to you in prayer and Father, we thank you so much for the life of David, Lord. And as we preach this series, uh, we've, we've come to know him as we're looking in Bible study and still proceeding in that Bible study in 1 Samuel. We're looking at the rise of the king. We're looking at the, the birth of this king. We're, we're seeing him before he even became king and learning about the boy David. As we've studied in our sermon series, we've learned about the man David. and We've seen his successes. We've seen his failures. And Father God, we've come to know him. And Lord, now we come to the close of his life. Lord, I ask that you would help open our hearts and minds to what you have for us today. As we continue this series on his life and his death. Lord, as he closes his eyes, help us to learn from that. Father, we too, all of us here, will close our eyes one day. Lord, all of us will inevitably face death as believers. Lord, it is an end that we all must come to. Some of us live in terror of it. Others will embrace it. Father, help us to understand it. Help us to come to terms with it. Father, help us to know what lies beyond and to embrace that day confidently. Father, if there's those here that are questioning where they would go or those in our audience online, Father, I pray that today that you would give them assurance of what is beyond. Father, I pray that today and this week and this month that we would come to terms with it, that you would enable everyone within this audience to come to terms with the fact that we are finite creatures. We are going to die. But Lord, not to fear that, but to embrace that. To live into the freedom, Lord, that we have nothing to fear, that death does not hold a sting for those who are in here. And that that means that we as Christians are called to live very, very differently. The saints of the past live differently because of that. And yet all too often we in America tremble at in fear, hide out, because we are so fearful of our own mortality. Help us not to fall victim to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our story finally comes to a close, and it's an ending that all of us must one day face. Now this life is all too brief for most of us. Not, not for all of us. For some of us it's a torturous life. Uh, not for many of us in America. Some, some people in America, it's a torturous life. Um, but for most people, it's not. Now, throughout human history and, and throughout the world today, there are certain people who life is a very difficult and arduous task. If you were born with certain disabilities, it can be a difficult and an arduous task. If you were born into certain cultures, it can be a very difficult life. Uh, and all throughout history, life can, or was difficult for certain people. Certainly the Hebrews who were enslaved for 400 years under the Egyptian rule, life was very difficult for them. In our own culture, uh, slaves in the United States had a brief period of time. Uh, slavery in the United States was not 
all that long, but it was long enough, and that was a very brutal period of time. Uh, but every culture has had slavery throughout human history, and slavery was a very brutal time. Now, slaves under the Roman culture endured a very brutal existence. Now, there have been cultures where famine has hit and have had a very brutal existence. The Ethiopian famine was very difficult. There have been all kinds of wars that have gone on. People who have been in warlike cultures and have been had to endure that or have been the victims of wars have really struggled and suffered. And so there have been all kinds of cultures where life has been torturous and arduous. And yet, even in those cultures, some people have endured and have enjoyed their life. But for most of human history, most people have enjoyed life. And for li them, life has been all too brief. It's a flash in the pan for most of us. Now, when you're young, it may not seem like that. When you're a child, when you're a teenager, with your, with, living with your parents and looking forward to getting out, it may seem like every day is a year. I remember that when I was a teenager. I wanted to get out of my parents' house. And it seemed like it would never happen. It was an eternity. And then that day came, and it was joyous, and I was excited. I got out, and I was on my own. And when you're a parent with small children, and your children are growing, and you have baby after baby in their diapers, uh, life can seem to drag on. They're never going to get out of diapers. And the next one comes, and they're never going to get out of diapers, and life can drag on. And then there's a period of time as parents when you kind of lose track of time. Those 18 years with your kids, you'll tend to lose track of time. And then eventually they leave you, and they go off to college. And for most of parents, the first one's kind of a shock. But by the time the last one leaves, that can be a real eye-opener for most parents. Sometimes when the last one goes off and gets their job, that's the eye-opener. And at that period of time when you had kids, time was kind of suspended for most parents. But then when they leave the house, you begin to look at each other and you begin to look around and you're like, where did the time go? And at that point, you realize how much older you've become. You look in the mirror and you see the wrinkles and you see the face looking back of you is not as young as you thought. You begin to realize that time has passed. Now, at that point in time, you begin to come to reconciliation. You have to reconcile with who you are. For some parents, it's a joyous time. You've raised your kids well, they're doing well, and it's an exciting time. You did the right thing. Other people realize, wow, I've blown it. I was too busy working. I was really pushing for that next promotion. I, you know, just that next little bit. If I could just earn a little bit more money, then my kids are going to be happy and my family's going to be happy. Just, just that next little bit, my wife's going to be happy. If I can just get to that next stage, if I can just go a little bit further and then... Your kids are gone, and you look up, and you look around, and you realize, I blew it, and I can't get that time back. I look at my wife or my husband, and I realize our marriage is in shambles. I put it on hold for 18 years or 20 years, and now what? And so for a lot of folks, that's where the day of reckoning comes. Now, for other people, when they start to hit their 60s, in their 70s, and their 80s, and their 90s, and now they're facing death at whatever age, that's when the reality begins to strike them about their own mortality. Our bodies begin to shrivel up. We begin to have health problems. We begin to get weak and frail. Our brains begin to fail us. Our minds are not quite as sharp as they used to be. 
Now, we feel young inside. I mean, I look in the mirror and we think, wow, uh, that, I, I feel like I was when I was 20. I mean, the, the same self is there, but my body is not the same body it was. What's going on? Time flashes by. It's then that we begin to understand the, tr the truth of the words of King David. Psalm 103, 15 to 16. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Now, when Hebrew says man, of course, it's, it's a different language, and so it uses man or that word for all of humanity. But its place knows it no more. When a flower dies and withers, in a few months you walk over, or even just a few weeks, and it's gone, and it's as if it never existed. I talk to that a lot of people are worried when they leave their jobs or if they leave their church, they leave whatever. I, I talk about, about that with pastors and I can't leave. If I go, my church is going to be destroyed. If I do this, my job's going to be destroyed. People really need me. And there's a story of a, a pastor, and I always remind other pastors, I remind other businessmen of this. You want to know how much people are going to miss you in a year or two years? And he says what? And he fills a bucket full of water. And he says, plunge your hand into that bucket. And he said, all right, hold it there, hold it there, hold it there. Now pull it out. The guy pulls it out. He says, notice the ripples? He says, yeah. Times it. And a minute later, there's not a ripple on there. He goes, that's how long your people are going to miss you. He said, it may take a few months. It may take a little while. But in, a, in, in enough time, it's going to be as if you never were. He said, we're eternal creatures, and we're made for something different than this. Our life is not for the here and now. We are for something else. We are going to be, and that's what David is talking, here today and gone tomorrow. And David says it will be as if we never were. And what does he mean by that? There are things in our life that are going to be eternal. And there are things in our life that are finite. And we as human beings struggle with understanding that. We tend to struggle, we tend to focus on the things that are finite and ignore the things that are eternal. And that's what David is teaching us this morning. So what are those things that are eternal? What are those things that are finite? Let's look at that. You see, David lived in a society that was not as sheltered as ours is. He was a man who lived around death. He was constantly saw it. And most societies other than our modern Western society, by the way, did, do live around death. Uh, where do most people go to die in our society? Where do you think? Hospital, right? Nursing homes, right? We put them out the pasture. We put them out of sight. I'm a chaplain at a hospital. I go to a lot of deathbed visits. Right? Or, or in here, uh, when you guys pass away, I'll go see you at your deathbed. So I'll see a lot of death. Chris will see a lot of death. He's a chaplain in the military. We see death, but a lot of people won't see a lot of death. But that's not been the way it has been. I mean, that's not the way it, <laughs> excuse me, is the way it has been throughout most of history. It's not the way it is in most of the world. It is the way it is in most of the first world. 
most people have seen death all the time. You didn't have nursing homes and you didn't have hospitals. Most people saw death constantly. People would die by the side of the road. People would die in their homes. That's where most people died. People died in childbirth. Babies died all the time. Children died all the time. Most children didn't make it past the age five, right? How many women here have had a C-section? You would be dead, right? How many of you have had an, an, an infection where you had to take an antibiotic? You would be dead, right? How many of you have had an appendix rupture? You would be dead, right? All of these things would happen and people would see that. This is the way of life. And people were around this all the time. Now, David was a warrior, so he saw death all the time. Death was in front of people, and so they weren't scared of it. But in our society, we are anesthetized from death. We lay it aside. And so we tend to fear it. We are afraid of death. We don't like our own mortality. We don't want to deal with it. And so it's very scary to us. Enter the novel coronavirus. And for most of us, this is the first time we've had to come face to face with our own mortality. And that's why it's been so scary for so many people. Now, some people aren't so scared of it, but a lot of people are really petrified of this virus. The novel coronavirus is hiding behind every doorframe, behind every tree, behind every leaf of grass for some people. And they are truly horrified by it. Other people or maybe a little too brash, but that's another way sometimes of facing death. I'm not really afraid of it, and I'm going to go out, and they're being foolish about it. But for many people, this is the first time a pagan culture, a culture that doesn't know God, doesn't believe in eternity, has faced their own mortality. And so how do we deal with this? We're very scared of it when you face your own death. C.S. Lewis writes um, a, wartime, a series of wartime lectures and one of the things he writes about war, he goes, why do we fear war so much? Why do these bombings, why does all this stuff make us so scared? And during that lecture, he talks about death, and he says, look, it can't be the fact that we die, because 100% of people are going to die. So it can't be the death in war. It can't even be the painful death in war. He says, look, getting shot is a relatively quick way to die. And even the pain of a belly wound, as painful as that is, and he'd been in war, that's a painful way to die. Nobody wants to die from a belly wound. If somebody came in here and started shooting up the church, we don't want to die that way. But C.S. Lewis says this, but does that compare to the pain of brain cancer, which is a much longer, gruesome way to die? He says, no, not at all. He says he's seen horrible ways to die. He says, so why do we fear war? And he says, why? Because it shatters our illusion that we are in control. It shatters our illusion that we aren't going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Your wife's going to die. Your child's going to die. Your grandparents are going to die. Your friends are going to die. Everyone around you is going to die. Very happy sermon. Good morning, everybody. Look, the plague we're in right now doesn't compare at all to plagues or outbreaks of various diseases that ravage through all, all other cultures. But for us, this is the first time we've come face to face with the fact 
that we could die. And percentage-wise, is this is a very, you know, not very many people are dying. Lots of numbers, but percentage-wise, it doesn't compare to the bubonic plague. It doesn't compare to other major plagues, but it has shaken us. So the question I have for you this morning is, have you thought about your own mortality? Have you come to terms with the fact that you are mortal and that you could die at any moment? Have you come to terms with the fact that anybody you know could die at any moment? If you haven't, it's scary, and it's even maybe terrifying when you open your mind to that concept. But you need to do so. Why? Well, as believers, it's important for us to do so. We're called to do so. Why? Well, because it teaches us an important fact. And you say, Jeff, that's ridiculous. As believers, we're not called to realize we're supposed to die. At which point, I will say, really? What is that? It's the focus. And, and, and what is this? What do we do every Sunday? We remember that we're going to die. We remember that our Savior died. We remember that we rise from the dead. You see, David didn't just say that we were a flower. He uses our death to point us to something greater. Psalm 103, 17 to 19. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to, his co- and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. What's this concept? He points us and he reminds us, look, we are finite, but we don't have to fear because of the infinite, the infinite God. There is something greater than you There is something greater than me. And David points out that this is not all that there is. And it's important to us, it's important for us to remember this. And and this is difficult to us, or for us, because we are sensory creatures. We love things that we can taste, that we can touch, that we can smell, that we can see. And it doesn't matter who we are whether we're intellectuals or not, we only want to believe in those things that we, can, that we can sense. And you may say, no, that's ridiculous. We have scientists that don't believe in that. Our intellectuals don't believe in that. And I say, that's bunk. They're the same. They use more sophisticated equipment, but they won't believe in things that they can't use, that they can't sense with machines, right? If we can't sense it, if we can't see it, if we can't detect it with our machines, We don't want to believe in it. And so how do we sense, though, this afterlife? What do we sense? How can we detect? How can we measure what happens to us when we die? And so this is a difficult thing for modern scientists. This is a difficult thing for modern seculars. We can't detect what happens to us after we die. It's beyond our knowing. And so we want to say what? It doesn't exist. There is nothing after. And so we want to blow it off. How do we test and know if there's a God? 
In a secular culture, we want to say that there is no God because we can't detect a God, and so there must not be one. He can't exist. That's what Dawkins says, right? That's what many of our famous Sam Harris and other secularists tell us. But how do you measure a creature that or a being that is wholly other than us, who created everything that is around us, and yet he is wholly different from that thing? Meaning that everything that we experience and taste and touch and know is wholly different from God. I mean, he's not in our experience. We don't have anything that can measure him. How could you know him? It requires faith to believe in this God. It requires faith. So for many of us, we simply shut all these things down. Death simply moves us into a state of nothing, and there is no God. But David as does all of Scripture, says that this is not all that there is. Death is not, death, excuse me, is not the end. Rather, it's simply a transition. There is a thing that lasts forever. The word of the Lord is because God is eternal. At the end of our time, we come face to face with the fact that we are mortal. All too many of us avoid this issue for too long during our lives. Why? because we're afraid of it. But there's a certain clarity that comes to us when we realize we're going to die and when we come to terms with it. There's a certain freedom that comes with that. It helps us to grasp not only the value of this life, but it helps us to begin to wrestle with the larger questions in life. We are part of something bigger. And when you begin to understand that you are mortal and that you are going to pass, you begin to ask the next question, what's going to happen after I die? And then you begin to ask the question, what's the value of this life? Because if you begin to understand that there is something after, and if you begin to understand as a Christian that you are a servant of God, and that the word of God is true, and that you are called to live for an eternity rather than the finite here, you begin to change what you're living for. What are you living for, Christian? You begin to understand that things are not all that there is. You begin to understand that relationships are much more valuable. You begin to understand that people are more valuable. You begin to understand that other people's salvation is more important. You begin to understand that hardships and difficulties on this earth prepare you for something much longer. You begin to understand and you begin to see things on this earth very differently than you would otherwise. You also begin to stop living in fear of death. Stop living in fear of what might happen to you. For pagans, it's a little different for those who don't believe. They have to wrestle through a whole host of beliefs. Is there a God or isn't there? Are we eternal or aren't we? If there is a God, which one? Is there an afterlife? Or do we just stop existing? If there is an afterlife, how do we get there? For us, we have to decide whether we give our lives to Jesus or not. But once we give our lives to Christ, then we need to decide how we're going to live for him. We begin to understand when we read scripture that our lives are short and we have a brief period of time to make a difference for him and to make a difference in the lives of others. Are you making a difference for Jesus? 
And are you making a difference in the lives of others? Are you making the most of your time here? When you die and you meet your Father in heaven, will he say, well done, good and faithful servant? You've got to start asking, for what should I be living? And of what should I be afraid? This is why we read at the end of David's life in 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded King Solomon. He commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes and his commandments and his rules and his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. You see, David doesn't fear death. He has nothing to fear. He's seen death, and he's come to terms with it. He doesn't go in as a coward. Now, that doesn't mean he's not nervous. I always say death is like a roller coaster. When I'm going up that hill and I'm about to come down on the other side, I may be a little nervous, right, when you're going to go down that hill. Now, when we come out on the other side of the ride, woo! well, that was an awesome thing, right? I mean, 100 years from now, after I've died and we're all sitting in a campfire around heaven, like we've all passed away or 1,000 years from now, we all may be talking about the way we passed away, right? Wow, that was an awesome car wreck. Oh, I uh, couldn't believe the sickness I went. Woo, that parachuting, maybe I should have thought differently, right? Whatever it was, we'll be sitting around talking about the way we lived and the difference it made. And that, that initial bump over, over the roller coaster ride, we may have been a little bit nervous. I'm not saying David wasn't nervous when he went in. But look what he does. At the end, he's worried about these things. He wants to make a difference for the next generation. And that's a critical state. That's a critical step for parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. You have an obligation to pass on wisdom to the next generations. David understands that. And we need to learn that from him. You should also pass on your blessing to them. In Genesis, we read that Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. Jacob blesses his sons and two of his grandsons. David gives a charge to his son Solomon to be strong as a leader and as a man. His charge is to keep the faith and walk in God's ways. Notice that this is most, the most critical thing to David. If you don't have kids, then you're passing on your wisdom and your blessing to other relatives. Or other people you're making a difference, in whose lives you're making a difference. But after all, we've learned about this man of God, his successes, his failures, his love. His battles, his blessings, his tragedies, his great wealth, his wives, his power, his prestige. After all of this, David never forgot from where he came. He never forgot who gave him all of this, Yahweh. He also never forgot in his darkest moments who was with him, Yahweh. He never forgot all of this. And this is why at the end of his life and from here on out, God compares every king to David. We look at his life and say, ah, what a failure. He was a murderer. He was this. He was that. He wasn't like me. I'm a lot better. <laughs> Were you? You see, at the end of his life, what is this king doing? He's passing on his wisdom. He's learned from all his failures. And he's most concerned, son, stay with the Lord. Here's what I've learned. Here's my blessing. Don't do as I did. Do this. He writes this poem. 
Here's what I've learned. Here is who God is. I love the Lord. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Will you die this way? Will you say these things on your deathbed? David has faced every sort of betrayal and hardship, and yet through it, he's come out all, through it all, unwavering with his faith. He tells his son, and all you do, walk upright in the faith, and don't forget his leading. And Solomon's going to need this lesson, because the next stages are going to be tough. David says, look, you're going to have to execute two murderers, Joab and his brother, who have killed two honest, godly men. You're going to have to keep the kingdom from dividing. But for our purposes, we're going to learn that our calling as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, that, that when we come to terms with our mortality, this frees us to live a different way. And it frees us to become a different person. And it frees us to speak into the lives of others in a different way. We can bless our families before we pass. We have great privileges in how we can live. For all of us, when we lose the fear of death, we gain great freedom. We understand that this world is not all that there is and that we are eternal creatures. We stop living for the here and now. We stop shaking and trembling at the thought of every sniffle and cough. We stop stressing or living in terror at the thought of losing loved ones, you're going to lose them. We understand that, yes, it could happen in the moment, and in the blink of an eye, it's going to happen to all of us. And we don't stress because we know that we will be with God. So what are we afraid of? And when we lose that fear, we can begin living into the freedom in which God called us to live. Not foolishly jumping into tanks full of piranhas. Not diving off cliffs and risking our lives for no reason. Rather, living into the freedom in which God called us to live. And taking the chances which God calls us to take. And not living in fear of what man or disease or anything else can do to us. Amen.